Our sermon today is taken from Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29 through chapter 8, verse 17. This is the word of God. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him to his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When, apply, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night no one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Let us go before God one more time in prayer for the preaching of his word. Father, what a challenging passage this is. It shows to us, Lord God, that you do not avoid tough questions, but you confront them. You cause us to confront them. You cause us to see, Lord God, that there really is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to deeds of the righteous. There is injustice. There's suffering, Father. And you have caused us to address these things in this passage. So, Father, help us now as we address a tough passage like this, that we would see what you would have here for us, make it clear to us what you would want us to learn from this passage, and make it clear to us, Lord God, how this passage ultimately is fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, welcome again to Covenant City Church. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're continuing now in chapter 8 because we just talked about chapter 7 last week. And if you remember from last week, we ended uh, chapter 7 
with a discussion about how there are just some things in life that seem to limit wisdom. There are some things in life that seem to confound wisdom, to frustrate wisdom. And we saw last week at the end of chapter 7 that that one thing that seems to confound Solomon and the preacher here, or the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, that it is sin. Sin seems to confound the author. Sin, sin seems to confound traditional human wisdom, our human intuitions, how we feel like the world ought to go. In other words, there's something about sin that is perplexing, that causes us to be frustrated, that frustrates the endeavor to seek human wisdom. And that's one of the deepest questions of the human heart. One of the highest and, and most strong, powerful objections to, to Christianity is this question. Where is God when there is evil and suffering? Why does God seem to be silent when those who are strong and evil continue to oppress the weak? Where is God when the most vulnerable, the widows and the orphans, are being oppressed? Where is God, in other words, when evil seems to be running rampant, and yet those who are evil are the ones enjoying the good things of the land? When those who are evil continue to get richer and richer and more and more powerful, but the weak get more and more oppressed. Where is justice in this world when there's so much evil that abounds? And we could come up with really simplistic answers to that as Christians. We could say something like, well, God has a purpose in everything. And we just say those kind of things rather flippantly. Or we're, we're afraid of those questions. We avoid them. We, we say false promises to people. You know, if you just believe in God, life would go better for you. And we hear testimonies about people coming up and saying, the moment I believed in God, life became all the more better for me. My problems went away immediately. I stopped struggling with sin immediately. I stopped uh, uh, facing oppression immediately. But it doesn't take long for us to see that reality isn't that simple. You know, give yourself another five, ten years and suffering hits again. There will be loss. There will be tragedy. There will be death. Something inevitably tragic will happen in your life, Christian, non-Christian. And here's the encouraging things about the Bible, friends. Texts like this actually causes you to confront these things. And when you actually read the Bible itself, the Bible is incredibly realistic. It doesn't give you pat answers. It doesn't give you simplistic answers. But the Bible actually confronts these realities. And instead of being shying away uh, from, from tough questions about where is God in the midst of all this, it tackles it head on. It actually affirms the skeptic in some ways because this text is saying to you, life doesn't work according to what you think and how you think it should work. Life isn't simple. The evil do enjoy prosperity and, this, and those who are most vulnerable do end up suffering. So how do we wrestle with all these things? And this text tackles that head on, all right? There are three points that I want to point us to in this text today. First, how evil confounds human wisdom. Second, how injustice confounds human wisdom. And third, how divine mercy confounds human wisdom. All right? How evil confounds human wisdom. How injustice confounds human wisdom or frustrates human wisdom. Third, how divine mercy confounds human wisdom. All right, so first, how evil confounds human wisdom. Look at the first verse of our text here. Verse 29 of chapter 7. This is the very end of chapter 7, which I think goes right along to chapter 8 here. I'm going to go through this passage verse by verse and pretty closely, so keep up with me here. Verse 29 of chapter 7 and verse 1 of chapter 8 tell us the main thesis of the rest of chapter 8, okay? Notice here in verse 29, look at what he says. See, this alone I found. 
In other words, when, when the author here is surveying reality, observing everything and, and experiencing it all, he's saying here, this is the one key thread throughout all of reality. This alone I found, this is the one key thread that confounds everything else. That God had made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God had made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In other words, the one constant thing about reality that he can't seem to shake away is the fact that man has continually tried to go apart from God and therefore try out many schemes, many evil ways, devices, plans that are contrary to God's will, oppressing other people, evil in other words, right? So that's why here in chapter 8 verse 1 he says this, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. He's saying here, given the fact that there is so much evil in this world, that every single man, as we saw last week in chapter 7 verse 20, is continually evil, there's no man who's righteous, and every single man has sought out many schemes, there is no one who is truly wise. And it's striking that it is Solomon who's saying something like this, because Solomon was given wisdom from God as a gift of grace. But yet he's still saying, despite all the wisdom that I have, the rulership that I have, the experiences that I have, my seeking out of wisdom, I can now still confess that despite all these things, because of the many schemes of man, and he's including himself in here, right? Because he's himself a man. There is no one who's truly wise. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? In other words, because of man's many schemes, you can't really tell what's about to happen. You can't really tell the meaning and significance of things. In other words, there is no, again, moral order. Things don't happen according to our human intuitions. And even if we follow traditional human wisdom, things that we, sh we think should be common sense, things that we think should be plain and simple facts, things are still going to frustrate us. Things are still not going to go the way we, we intend them to go. Things are still not going to be predictable. So that's actually the pattern of today's chapter. What Solomon is going to do is he's going to point out a reality from life, an observation about suffering and evil. And then he's going to say, you see how the suffering and evil here actually confounds a principle of human wisdom. So he's going to go back and forth here. Consider this reality. And if this is the reality, how can this wise saying be true? If this is reality, how can you still stick to traditional wise sayings. There's, in other words, there's something about the concrete realities of life that seems to confound what we know deep inside us to be true. All right, so even though we know that at the end of verse 8, verse chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face has changed. Even though we know that wisdom is supposed to make our face shine, we know deep inside that there is no one who's wise. So if that's the structure, let's continue on to verse 2. Here's verse 2. It's telling us now a traditional piece of advice that will be confounded by a present reality. Here's the traditional piece of advice, especially in the ancient world. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, here he's saying, here's a traditional piece of advice. Here's something that you ought to keep in mind no matter where you go. Obey your authorities. Obey your authorities. Make sure that you don't go on his bad side. Make sure that you please him. Make sure that you actually obey your authority so that all will be well with you. That's a traditional piece of advice. Uh, it doesn't just apply to kings, right? It applies to any authority in your life. It would be wise for you to obey your bosses at work. It would be wise for you to obey your parents at home. It would be wise for you to obey your political authorities that are over you. 
Why? Well, because the king is supreme. He's authority. Why would you cross him in a wrong way, in other words? And who may say to him, what are you doing? Who can, who can alleviate him from, from his power, in other words? Who can stop him if he wants to do something? And then verse 5 continues on this wise saying. It says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. He's saying here, those who are wise know the right timing of when to say something to a king, the right timing of when to say no to a king, the right timing of how to be in the king's good side, right? There's, there's wisdom in this. You will know the proper time and the just way. And you're going to assume that the king will know the proper time and the just way. Trust your authorities. There's a reason why he's a king. If he's a wise king, he should know what is wise. He should know the timing. And he should know the just way. That's the principle. Obey your authorities. Seems like common sense, right? But here's the problem. Verse 6. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him what it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Here's what the author is saying. You've heard it said, obey your authorities. But realize that even if you obey an authority, you don't know what's going to happen to you. You might be the wisest servant. You might know the perfect timing. You might be obedient in every single way. But yet you know that there's still trouble going around. It's the end of verse 6. And you also know that you don't know what's going to happen to you. Verse 7. For he does does not know what it is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? In other words here, even if you obey in every single way, You've tried to live your life in the most just way possible. You have tried your best to not cross the king. You still don't know what's going to happen to you in the future. In other words, obedience now doesn't necessarily pay off in the future. You could obey with all your desires, and yet in the future, things are still uncertain. Things are still unpredictable. Things might still go wrong for you. Trouble still lies heavy on you. Not only that, verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Even if you obey in every single way, you might still die. In fact, you will still die. You don't have power over that. You might have power and, 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 and desires to obey the wise, to obey the authorities, to desire the just way, and yet you still have no power over death. You could pursue wisdom all you want and yet still die. Furthermore, he's talking about war here suddenly. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. He's saying here, right, even if you obey the king, what if the king that you're obeying isn't just? What if he's a king that leads you into war? What if he's the type of king who's actually a tyrant, who uses his power to oppress others and seeking power for himself? He begins wars And then if that's happening, what would that do to the wise saying that you ought to follow your authority in every way? Go to war? Obey your authority? There won't be any discharge from war. There's no escaping that. In other words, you're going to have to obey here till the point of death. What gain is that for you? And wickedness will not allow you to have any escape from this, right? So you could plot your ways. You could try to be obedient. You could try whatever you can. You still don't know what the future is going to have for you. You still don't know whether the just way will happen for you. You still don't know whether you're going to die in the right way or not. And you still might end up in war because in verse 9 it says, All this I have observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power 
over man to his hurt. So it's saying, right? Notice the structure again. Here's a wise saying. Here's a concrete reality. Oh, you wise person. Oh, you who's trying to be obedient and wise. What are you going to do with this concrete reality? And this is a real thing, especially in the ancient world, right? It's not as if they, they could simply move from one nation over another. If you are under a tyrannical king and you're supposed to be wise and you're supposed to simply obey the authority, what's going to happen if this king is unwise? What's going to happen if this king is unjust? Are you just going to move and travel months across the desert to another nation? And there's no guarantee that another nation there would have wise leaders. There's no guarantee that you're going to survive the travel. There's no guarantee that you won't end up in war anyway. There's no guarantee over the future. So what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do when wise sayings say you have to obey your authorities, but you're under unwise, unjust, oppressive authorities, and they remain evil, and they remain in power? The moment we strike that kind of question, you're already starting to see, right, how evil confounds human wisdom. We often hear it said, those who are idealistic, right, they just need to grow up and get into the real world. You hear, you've heard that maybe often. You've been rebuked by older people maybe by saying something like that. Or there's a truth to this. Because when we're younger, we're not yet exposed to the suffering and the concrete evil realities of life. And we say to ourselves, oh, I'm just going to work hard, going to get a good job, going to get married. And then suddenly you realize 30 years later, it never really worked out that way, did it? There are people out there who've tried their hardest but simply because of an oppressive boss, their careers get derailed. There are people out there who try their hardest to obey their parents, and yet, after years and years and years and years, they're still getting abused, not getting the approval that they need, and they can't go ahead. There are others out there who continually try to be obedient to God's word and seek a pure marriage, and at the same time, they still see hardship comes their way. And your idealistic visions of what a good career might look like, what a good family ought to look like, what a good marriage ought to look like, suddenly it gets confounded. And that's why people get cynical and they tell you, well, don't be too idealistic. And they quash the hopes of the young. Because there's truth to this. There's something about evil, the concrete realities of life, that goes against what we know ought to be right, what we know ought to be wise, what we know ought to be. And it confounds us. So it causes us to ask questions about justice, Here's my second point. Injustice confounds human wisdom. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised. In the city where they had done such things, this also is vanity. Notice here the pivot from verse 9 to verse 10. The question at the end of verse 9 is, there's so much oppression and evil in this world. It confounds human wisdom. It confounds what we know we ought to do. It kills our hopes. So if that's the case, there's so much wickedness in this world, shouldn't there be retribution? Shouldn't there be punishment? Shouldn't there be justice? Justice in the sense of giving people what they're due. If this is what wicked people are continually doing, where is the justice? And verse 10 confounds that immediately because it, it recognizes the injustice that often happens. Verse 10 describes the situation here where there's wicked people who live wicked lives and then after they die... They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. In other words, there are wicked people that 
in such a way where when they were alive before they died, they used to be in and out of the holy place. In other words, people thought that these wicked people were holy. They did religious things, they did holy things, and their wickedness were never really found out, even after they died. So when they died, they were buried. In other words, these wicked people had a proper burial, right? There, there was a proper burial taking place, which is normally a place of honor, a place of dignity. And their wickedness was never found out. Throughout all of their lives, they went in and out of the holy place that the wickedness was never found out. In the city where they had done such things, in the city where they were hypocritical, they did the holy things and they continually wicked, they were praised. So their reputations were never marred. They were never caught in their wickedness. And rather, all the fake righteous things that they were doing was credited unto them so that they were getting proper burial and proper praise. This is vanity. And verse 11, because a sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Verse 11 tells us the natural consequence of something like this, right? If there are wicked people whom the public thinks is righteous, such that this wicked person could live their whole lives in total hypocrisy and still get buried with honor and still get praised, then why should we obey? That's the natural instinct of the human heart. If the sentence against an evil need is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, if there's no punishment, if there's no retribution, if there's no justice to be done, if, there's, if wickedness is never found out, why be good? Why obey? It doesn't pay off. Not only that, let's compound evil with evil. If we could get away with it, let's just do it. Right? So here, it's telling us not only that we will seek to want to do something, it also tells us, an implication of this is, it also tells us that we pursue the good, not because we love the good, but because we can get away with doing, we can't get away with doing evil. In other words, we pursue the good not because we love the good, but because we're afraid of the punishment. We don't hate for evil, we don't hate evil for evil's sake. We, 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 we fake hating evil simply so that we can get away with it. You see, in other words, we're more motivated oftentimes by fear of consequences than we are by the love of wisdom, by we are by the love of good. And if there is no ev- there's no retribution, there's no punishment, then the heart of man constantly says, why obey? Why obey if it doesn't pay off? In verse 12 here is the wise saying again, right? So notice again the structure is, Concrete reality contradicts a wise saying. Verse 10 to 11 already tells us the concrete reality. There's wicked people who never get caught and never get found out. And if that's the case, other people end up doing more wicked things. And then verse 12 is the wise saying that is contradicted by that, right? Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. He's saying deep inside his heart, he knows that those who are wicked shouldn't live long lives. They shouldn't be enjoying the fruit of their labor. They shouldn't be enjoying the fruit of their oppression. They should have punishment due for them. And those who fear God, they should be the ones who enjoy long lives. 
They should be the ones who live their days not like a shadow, but rather they would live long, full lives before God because everything will go well with them because they fear God. But immediately, the moment he says the wise saying here in verse 13 and 12, right? In verse 14, he contradicts it again. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens going to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens going to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is a vanity. So in between these two concrete realities, that there's injustice, that evil often wins, and good is unrewarded, there's this wise saying, sinners should not have their way, the good should have their way. But this wise saying is drowned out. It's saying here, if you're going to stick to this wise principle, Go ahead at it with your eyes wide open because consider the fact that when you go out into this reality, you need to be confronted with this reality that sometimes even if you obey with all your heart, it's not going to work out for you. Life will continue to be hard. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that your life will suddenly become rosy. And if you're wicked, you could get away with it. And people will get away with it. And the sooner you realize this principle, the sooner you'll grow in wisdom, right? This, by the way, is, is the root of bitterness, right? Again, the book of Ecclesiastes was written so that you might be confronted by the harsh realities of life, so that when you are confronting these realities, you're no longer looking at them, and you're, not, you're, not gonna, you're no longer going to be shocked by them, right? It's telling you up front, get out of your idealism, get into the real world, and see that this is what's going to happen to you. The wickedness that, 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 that is running rampant, they will oftentimes be rewarded by the world and those who are good will often be rejected by the world. Grow up and see this. Look at this concrete reality, right? It's telling you here, if you don't see it in this way, your idealism and your hope will be completely crushed. So confront these realities head on. And if you, if you don't realize this soon, you're going to end up becoming bitter. The book of Ecclesiastes here is complimenting what the psalmist in, in Psalm 73 is saying. Uh, psalm 73 talks about a, a psalmist, the author of the book of Psalms, who's saying before God this particular problem, who's asking God this particular problem. Those who are wicked end up becoming fat and sleek, but I, who am righteous, I suffer all the day long. And then he says at the end of that psalm, in vain have I kept my hands pure. In vain have I kept my hands pure. What's the author of the psalm there saying? Lord, I expected that my life would go well the moment I obey you. Lord, I expected that my life would go up and up and up if I just obey you. But right now, I'm growing up and I'm seeing that even though I've obeyed all of my life, I haven't yet been rewarded. Where are you, God? I'm suffering. And in the middle of my suffering, I'm filled with envy because I see the wicked. They're richer than me. They're greater than me. They have more power than me, and they're oppressing me all the day long. And the psalmist is here saying to himself, in bitterness, right? In vain have I kept my hands pure. In vain have I kept my hands pure. Because if you don't realize this quickly, it's going to fuel this kind of bitterness and despair where you will ask God at a point in your life, in our lives. Lord, have I followed you for nothing? Why are you here in this room today? Why are you seeking obedience unto the Lord? Maybe some of you here are 
you're here today because you're, you're seeking God again because you're facing through hard times. But here's the harsh reality. When you follow God, that hard thing that you're going through might not necessarily go away immediately. Or it might never go away. And you're going to be tempted one of these days to say unto God, has it been in vain that I've kept my hands pure? If we might pray into the Spirit, there's a beautiful scene in the movie Silence by Shusaku Endo, right? Where there were two Jesuit priests who ended up in feudal Japan in the 17th century. They were missionaries sent there by the Catholic Church, right? And, and they were persecuted by the Japanese. And if you've seen that movie, you saw these images of these missionaries being hung upside down. They were being bled to death very slowly with drops of blood coming from their necks. And in the middle of this imprisonment scene, in the middle of this torture scene, there was this prayer set out by the narrator. And the narrator basically said this, as a missionary, suffering this kind of injustice, seeing this injustice all the day long, missionaries being sent for the cause of God's mission, right? They're seeing this injustice, they're being sent for holy purposes, and yet God isn't delivering them. He says here in one narrated scene, he says, Lord, I'm tempted to despair. Your silence is overwhelming. I'm tempted never to pray again because I fear that when I'm praying, I'm praying to nothing. Where are you? Where are you? And instead of shying away from that, friends, notice this fact here that this text doesn't take you away from these things, right? It's, it's telling you to confront these realities head on and say, these things happen. God will seem silent. And don't therefore be tempted to despair and don't therefore be tempted to give away pat answers to people who are suffering and saying, things will just look up for you. Be there for them, be there with them. But notice that this is an experience of both believer and unbeliever alike. Sometimes God will stay silent or God will seem silent. And the answer might not be here in this lifetime. But yet, friends, look at verse 15. There's a third point here that we need to see. Yet, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man might toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He says here, despite all of these things, despite all the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, he says, I saw all the work of God. What's he saying? He's saying, even though I might despair, even though I might look upon this and become bitter, even though I might be tempted to, be, to despair and become bitter, he's saying here, at the end of the day, he's not going to let go of the sovereignty of God. He's saying at, at the end of the day, in the end of chapter 18, right, I still saw the work of God. Even though it doesn't make sense to me, even though the moral order that I intuitively sense isn't there, even though there's still so much oppression in this world, I still see the work of God behind all these things. In other words, I will not let go of my faith in God. I will still continue to, to work upon the Lord, even though at the end of verse 17 it says, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, and yet he will still say, I saw the work of God. 
In other words, here, the book of Ecclesiastes is commanding you to say, despite seeing all these things, don't despair. Hang on to the fact that God is sovereign, even if you can't find it out. You might not know the answer here, but know that God is still working. This is still his work. Don't despair. Don't let go of him. Obey him anyway and see the work of God anyway, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Hang on to him. Because I think that's what we're tempted not to do, right? We're tempted to say, because all these things are happening, I'm going to let go of my belief in God. I'm going to say, I'm not going to follow God anymore. In vain have I kept my hands pure. He's not worth it. I'm not going to obey because it doesn't pay off. But notice, if that's your line of reasoning, if that's your line of reasoning, just imagine if someone said that about you. What if you were married, right? Uh, Husbands, wives in this room. What if you were married and then... One day, you know, you remember that before you were married, you told your wife, husbands, would you love me no matter what? And wives will say, yes, I do. I love you no matter what. Uh, Even if I didn't have any money, even if there were no job, even if for a time I can't provide, you remember those vows, you remember the wedding vows that you made to one another. And then one day, 10 years down the road, It happens. You lost your job. You lost all of your money. You lost all of your trust fund, right? Chinese and Indonesians. You lost everything that you thought you would have that you could promise to your spouse. And then your spouse sees this and within a day says to you, in vain have I been loyal to you. In vain have I rested up my kids. In vain have I been loyal to you. In vain have I kept my hands pure. And then the next day, she or she runs off and finds another spouse. What would you do? What would you say? Would you say, I'm really sympathetic to that. That sounds like a wise thing to do. I really see myself in that. And yet, right, when I was preaching this whole time and I was telling you the, 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 the lamentation of the skeptic, you said to yourself, I felt that way against God. That's right. That's wise. I felt that way against God. You see, you're doing to God what you would never have been, you never would wish to be done unto yourself. And you're just confirming, as we were listening to that sermon, as we were listening to the text, right, we were just confirming what the book of Ecclesiastes has already proven to you in chapter 7, verse 20. There is no one righteous. There's no one here who hasn't sinned. There is no one here, in other words, who hasn't yet contemplated leaving God simply because it hasn't paid off for you. Simply because it has paid off for you, which reveals something about us, right? We obey God not because we want God or because we're satisfied with God. We obey God simply because we want the benefits of God, but not God himself, do we? That's what we were obeying for. We wanted to obey God because we thought it would pay off for us. And there's a deep irony in this, right? Because you worship a crucified Savior, We worship a crucified Savior, friends, because God may seem silent to you because he hasn't hasn't paid it off for you yet. Your obedience hasn't yet been rewarded, right? God may seem silent for you, but now we've realized that we're sinners. Why should God listen to a sinner who's thought about leaving him again and again and again and again? But there's another person who is actually righteous. And this other person isn't a sinner like you and me. This other person came into this world who was righteousness himself, lived a life that was actually perfect, 
obeyed in every single way, who is wise and wisdom himself, right? He's a person who is wise and utterly righteous. And yet, in the deepest moments of pain, in the deepest of moments of misery, in the deepest moments of being tempted by the devil, by 40 days and 40 nights, fasting from food and water, God remained silent, sent no angel to help him, nor did he tempt God with it. And in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, when his friends had abandoned him, when betrayal was looming, when death was looming, he cried out upon the Father and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's a truly righteous person, and yet God was silent to him. And then maybe then you start to realize that when God is silent for you, it ought to bring you back to the silence of God, to the one who is truly righteous in Christ Jesus, who though he was righteous, God was silent before him and didn't reward him immediately, but rather stayed obedient anyway. Because why did he obey? Because he understood that God is his own reward, that faithfulness to the Father means having God as your Father. And that's good enough. If God is all you have, God is all you need. And therefore, you could obey even if it doesn't pay off for you. And so now, if we're tempted to say, why should we obey God if it doesn't pay off? You look upon him and you say, because I have him. I have, I have no need for anyone else. And can you can look at him and say, I worship a crucified Savior. Why should I be treated any different? But there's a deeper, there's a deeper message in the cross that I think fulfills this passage here. Because as we're considering this, yes, we can understand that wisdom had came and he was the righteous one and yet God was silent to him. But it still doesn't really answer the lingering question. Isn't that unjust? There's still people who suffer under incredible amounts of evil. There's still malicious forces in the world that seem to demand justice. Where is God in all of this? But again, the cross answers this too. I want us to see this. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. Verses 25, verses 23 to 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. I want us to see this because this answers and fulfills all of those skeptical intuitions that we felt about the necessity or the need for justice, the need for a moral order out there, the need for God to speak, the need for God to intervene upon all this evil. Look at this here, verse 23 onwards. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God had put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here in verse 23 to 25, it's telling you all have sinned and God has sent forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation, as a substitute by his blood to be received by faith so that salvation is not by your works but by his works and if you believe in him you might be saved but why did he send Christ yes we know he sent Christ because he loved the world yes we know we sent Christ because it is by grace we are saved but in this particular passage it tells us something else about why God sent Jesus to be on the cross and it tells us here in verse 25 second half of it this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what it's saying. All right, I really want us to get this. Jesus was sent by God to show 
not just his grace for us, but also his utter righteousness. Why? Why do we need to see the righteousness of God? Why do we need to see the righteousness of God really displayed clearly and finally on the cross? Because in his divine forbearance, or in other words, his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. I want us to see this. Here's the answer, and here's the question that this passage is trying to say to you, all right? And what Ecclesiastes 8 is causing you to feel. How can God be righteous if he lets sins go unpunished? How can God be righteous and just if he lets injustice run rampant, if he lets wickedness go and run rampant? What, if, how, what, what kind of a just God is ruling over the universe if there's so much evil in this world? And here's what God is saying here. His patience upon sinners like you and me is actually compromising his justice if he never punishes sin. And here's what he's revealed in the cross. God is saying, I've been patient with you. And yes, that's unjust. I've been patient with you. I've been patient with sinners like you and me. And yes, that causes me to look unrighteous and unjust. I haven't spoken. And here's what he's saying here. I have spoken now in the Son because now, you see, friends, that punishment that was supposed to be for the wicked, for you and for me, he didn't send out that punishment onto you. And that should cause you to say, where is justice in all this? Instead, he's saying here, I have sent Jesus Christ on the cross to take that punishment on your behalf. Because he heard you. He heard you saying, Lord, where is justice? How will you punish sin? How will you punish unrighteousness? And he's saying here to you now, today, friends, that punishment is not going to go on your head. To show that I remain just and yet merciful to sinners like you and me, that punishment will go on someone else's head. And that is in Christ Jesus. Here's how I'm going to show you that I am just, even if I don't punish wickedness right away. Because, friends, when you think about injustice, you're not supposed to just think about the wickedness outside. You're supposed to be thinking about your own heart. Here's the shift that Christianity makes to you. You go and move yourself from this bitterness that says, these wicked people out there, they need to be punished. And you move from there, and you shift yourself from understanding that you are the wicked. And you say to yourself, how can I, a wicked person, be in your favor, a just and righteous God? That's the shift we all have to make. And here's how God remained just, friends. He sent Christ Jesus to die on the cross for you so that in living sinners, he can remain just. And in living sinners, that punishment wasn't just swept under a cosmic rug. That punishment was already carried out for you so that God could remain just and love the unlovely so that the unlovely would become lovely. Let us pray. Father, help us see how we can resist bitterness, how we can resist envy, how we can resist, Father, questioning your justice by looking upon your Son, that you haven't been silent, that you have shown us your decisive word, that you and your seeming silence, Father, is actually a manifestation of divine patience, divine mercy that confounds our senses of injustice. You've been patient with us all this long. 
only for us not to see, Lord God, that you've spoken that punishment, but not upon us, but upon Christ Jesus. Help us believe in this good news. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.